The sixth commandment, folks, say, is usually translated, Thou shalt not kill. Perhaps a better translation would be, Do no murder, inasmuch as there is indeed a difference between killing and murder. It is always wrong to murder people in thought, word, or deed. It is not always wrong to kill people in thought, word, or deed. Indeed, the word of God says that we must kill murderers and that we are murdering society ourselves if we do not kill murderers. The word of God further teaches that we must put those portions of our personality to death which are disfiguring us. Mortify, therefore, your carnal members. Put them to death which, of course, again, does not imply murder. And there is a sense in which if you are uh, a horticulturalist, uh, you will put some branches of a tree that are not bearing fruit to death uh, with a laudable aim of encouraging the growth of the more vigorous branches so that they can produce more profusely. So then, there's a distinction between killing which is not always wrong, and murdering, which is always wrong. But we need to see that this commandment, thou shalt not kill, or better, thou shalt do no murder, is covering a vast range of forbidden sins and encouraging a vast range of opposite virtues. Nowhere more is this taught than by our Savior himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, who says, Matthew 5, verse 21, You have heard uh, that it was said by the men of old time, You shall do no murder, and whosoever shall murder shall be in danger of the judgment. But I tell you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, which some say means, I spit on you, and which others say more probably means, you moron, or you fool, you morally depraved, twisted pervert, and he says that to his brother, that is, to one who really is in Christ, calling his fellow Christian a moral pervert, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And therefore, said Jesus, if you are bringing your gift to the altar, to God, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. That is to say, when you are bringing a gift to God, you remember that your Christian brother is grieved, legitimately grieved, against you for something that you have done to wrong him, and you remember it. Leave your gift in front of the altar without bringing it. Go on your way and first be reconciled to your brother, that is, make things right with your brother. Uh, if you borrowed money from him and didn't give him back at the date on which you 
were to repay that loan so that he's getting upset with you, don't bring a gift to God, to the church. Hmm? But go back and get economic justice first and repay that loan that was already due on the date and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See what Jesus is saying there? The same thing that he's saying in respect of um, taking care of one's parents in their old age. Today we have this terrible, terrible heresy that as long as you give money and plenty of it to the church, you're free to neglect your parents, to go into debt, to rip off your creditor, and that doesn't matter. Why, there are even some people I know who think they're going to get raptured any second, and they borrow as much money as they can now, hoping to be raptured uh, soon, and that they'll never have to repay the money that they've, that they've borrowed. This is awful. This is awful. To try and utilize the church and to dump money onto the church and to uh, use that to solve one's conscience of behaving like a pagan everywhere else except in church is not true Christianity, according to Jesus Christ. Well, now, here again we see that the keeping of this commandment, thou shalt do no murder, is very broad. We should see that when Jesus says we are not to become angry with our brethren without a cause, Jesus is not saying that every time we get angry we have murdered someone. How do we know that? Well, Jesus himself got angry, you remember, with the Pharisees, and he looked round them with anger, with orge, the Greek says, and our Saviour never sinned. If he had done, his death on the cross couldn't have saved anyone. So it is possible to get angry without sinning. And that's why the Catechism is very careful to say that only such anger as is unrighteous anger or anger without a legitimate cause is sinful. In point of fact, we should get angry, righteously angry, when we see people being defrauded, when we see people being ripped off by other people, when we see the honor of God being desecrated, for example, by the Sabbath day not being sanctified. These things should make us angry, and righteously so. And we are not sinning when we get angry for these reasons. But if I get angry with you just because I don't like the size of your nose or the color of your eyes, that's sin. That is a form of murder because I do not have legitimate cause to be angry with you for that reason or the other way around. Well now, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Question 135 of the larger catechism. The duties required in the sixth commandment, thou shalt do no murder, are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the lives of ourselves and others. Isn't it interesting that the catechism says that if you and I are to keep this commandment, thou shalt not do any murder, it starts with ourself. In other words, you have got to preserve the life of yourself, number one, and then you've got to do what you can to preserve the lives of others. Now, this is a very important point. 
We're living in an age when some very wacky people, and some of them Christians, say this. To be a Christian, you have got to lie down in a pool of mud, and you've got to invite godless people to come and stomp you in the stomach and grind you further into the mud, and then you've got to get up and crawl before them and apologize for having gotten in their way. That, we're told by some, is Christianity. But this is not Christianity according to the teaching of the Word of God. The Word of God does not say that we are to be reckless about preserving our own life as long as we bend over backwards to preserve everybody else's life. It doesn't teach that. Christianity is not altruism. Christianity is not self-abnegation. Christianity is self-assertion. Christianity is the equal assertion by us of our neighbors. But it's self-assertion, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the God who made us, and of the God who made our neighbor, whose images we are. Let me rephrase that. Not only are you to respect your neighbor's life, but you're also to respect your own life. Why are you to respect your neighbor's life? Not because you like your neighbor, not because he first respects your life, but you are to respect your neighbor's life simply because your neighbor, no matter how depraved he may be, is the image of God. Why are you to respect your own life and to take care of your own life? For the same reason. Because you are the image of God. And by disfiguring or killing yourself, you are insulting God whose image even you are, even if you may not think so. And isn't it interesting that our Savior never says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor more than thyself, nor, of course, does he ever say, Thou shalt love thy neighbor less than thyself. But he says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, now look, how are you and I ever going to love our neighbor properly and take care of his life until we first learned how to love ourselves properly? as the image of God, and to take care of our own life. If we don't know how to take care of ourselves, and how to govern ourselves, how are we possibly going to take care of and love our neighbor? And isn't it interesting that when Paul is giving directives under inspiration of the Holy Spirit as to how husbands are to love their wives, Paul says... Love your wife, O husband, like your own body, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh. But a man loves his own flesh, nourishes his own flesh, takes care of his own flesh. And that's true. I am required by Almighty God to take care of my own body, to look after it, to keep it alive, to feed it, to keep it warm, to clothe it. As a husband, I'm also required to do the same for my wife. Why? Because when I feed and clothe my wife, I'm feeding and clothing my own body, which I'm required to feed and clothe. How so? Because my wife is my body. She's bone of my bone. She's flesh of my flesh. She shall be called womb man, woman, because she is taken out of the womb of the man. The best way to be unhappy if you're a husband is to mistreat your wife. 
If you mistreat your wife, you'll be unhappy. You will suffer. Why? Because your wife is your body. And if you mistreat your own body, namely that part of your body which is your wife, you will suffer. But if you're loving and kind to your wife and you shelter her and you feel her and you nourish her, or as Paul says there, you cuddle your wife and you caress her as you would caress your own body, you will be happy. And she will respond and then you'll both be happy. So, the best way to take care of your own body uh, in marriage is to take care of your wife's body. best way to injure your own body and to be given burnt food in the oven unattractively is to ignore your wife. Uh, it has a wonderful boomerang effect. So now the catechism says the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and of others. Now how are we to do this? How are we to preserve our own life and the life of others? Well, by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. Notice, it doesn't say that we are to resist all tendencies which lead to the taking away of every life of everyone else. No. We should not resist tendencies in us which would lead us to justly take away the life of someone. You say, well, can there ever be circumstances where we should justly take away the life of other people? Most certainly. If a murderer is on the loose, it is the duty of society. After due process of law and establishment of the guilt of the accused, to put him to death. Not in a cruel way, of course, but to put him to death. That is a just taking of the life of another human being. But if we would just uh, actually want to wish people away by hating them, or actually perhaps by stabbing them unjustly, not in accordance with the word of God, then we have broken this commandment which says, Thou shalt do no murder. Further, the Catechism tells us that another duty required in the sixth commandment, uh, Thou shalt not kill, uh, is met by every lawful endeavor to preserve our own life and the life of all other people by just defense of our own life and by just defense of the lives of others against violence. Well, that means if you and I are walking down the road and we see a young thug attack an old lady and start beating her over the head with a cosh and grabbing her handbag, you and I are to run to the defense of that old lady and to defend her against violence. And I've not yet figured out a way, nor has any pacifist, how to defend that lady without using some degree of violence against the young punk. Now my mind goes back here some 16, 17, 18 years ago when I was asked to debate at a place called Grantham College, Pennsylvania, uh, the American Mennonites' leading dogmatician on the subject of uh, pacifism. And of course, he was a pacifist, and I was an anti-pacifist. We had a very interesting debate. 
and everyone in the audience was an Anabaptist who felt it was always wrong under any situation to use any violence. Well, I'll tell you, it got to be an interesting debate. Finally, this theologian, Dr. Timothy Turbs, I remember it distinctly, though it's a long time ago, he, he said that he would not under any circumstances use violence, not even to repel a thug. Well, I said, are you saying that if a little old lady uh, suddenly got attacked outside in the street, that you would not go to the aid of the little old lady? And he says, yes, that's right, I wouldn't. I said, well, I don't think that says very much for your manliness, but let me ask you what you would do. Would you pick up the telephone and phone the police? No, he says, I couldn't do that, because if I were to pick up the telephone and phone the police, that would mean that I am directly responsible for calling of the police who would use violence against this punk beating up the little old lady. Well, I said, let me put it in broader perspective. Let's say that this took place in Pittsburgh. And for whatever reason, uh, to some extent understandably or totally under understandably, 200 black people came down the street and suddenly started beating up 200 white people or the other way around, and then more and more of the buddies of each side climbed into one another until in the end the street was uh, streaming with blood, and at this time in the United States, uh, in many American cities, you had this kind of situation developing during what they then called the long, hot summer. I said, now you're going to phone the police. No, he wouldn't phone the police then either. I said, you're going to allow two races to destroy themselves and get involved in a race riot uh, just because uh, someone does something. Uh, many years ago in South Africa, um, there was a, an Indian shopkeeper in Durban and there was a little black boy that passed the Indian shopkeeper and uh, he was hungry and so he helped himself to a banana <laughs> uh, on the front of the Indian shopkeeper. And do you know that within two minutes after that there were I don't know how many Indians and black people killing themselves in the street until the white police finally came in and rounded up the people and took them off to jail and then the United Nations said ah racism again in South Africa but that, st that incident started with one little hungry black boy and I don't think he was anti-Indian at all helping himself to a banana and the Indian shopkeeper quite properly uh, wanting to de-banana eyes uh, the, uh, the, uh, the little black boy and before you could say um, Jack Robinson it was a race riot, not between blacks and whites, but between browns and blacks going on in that street. And what was the police supposed to do? Nothing? Say, oh, well, this is gorgeous. Let them annihilate one another. What do we care? So I was telling uh, uh, Dr. Timothy Turbs this. And um, when he said that he wouldn't even call the police if a race riot broke out, several of his Anabaptist kids, who would never, ever have gone to Vietnam, carrying a rifle and didn't even, wouldn't even want to go there carrying a stretcher to help the wounded as a non-combatant said now we've reached the ultimate intimacy I'm through with Anabaptism well that's good that's good we need to see that we are interrelated in the fabric of this world and although we should always use violence most economically minimizing it so as never to use more violence in resisting crime than is necessary, I think we need to see that I don't see any way of helping the little old lady being attacked without either rising to her aid 
uh, or at least phoning the police. I'm reminded of something that I read in Dr. Barthank years ago, where he said that um, a Dutch, um, a Dutch um, captain of a fishing vessel on the North Sea, out catching fish, if a big storm suddenly comes up, as they do in the North Sea, who abandons the steering wheel of the ship and goes down in his cabin to pray, instead of hanging on to that steering wheel like mad and praying like mad and using all of his expertise to guide that ship into the harbor, says Barfunk, such a man is neither a good Christian nor a good sailor. And that's the way I have to feel about that Mennonite theologian with all respect neither a good Christian nor a good theologian nor a good citizen we are involved it's not nice to be involved in some of these situations but we are involved and to the best of our ability being involved we've got to react to the way in which the law of God instructs us by making just defense of ourselves and our neighbors when our life is threatened by violence. We must rise to our defense. And you better believe I'm going to tell my daughters never to marry a man that proposes to them who is not prepared to defend my daughters. He is not fit to have their hand in marriage. And so on all the way down the line. On the other hand, we need to um, keep this commandment not murdering ourselves by patiently bearing the hand of God that means in affliction if we get a disease which is very painful we must patiently bear that hand of God rather than trying to kill ourselves or kill the doctor or curse the doctor because he can't kill the pain or curse God because he sent the pain we must learn patient uh, bearing of the hand of God in affliction quietness of mind and cheerfulness of spirit you ever thought of that that if you and I are not cheerful that we are murderers that's really something we need a cheerful disposition at all time even when we're going through great affliction inside of us we break this commandment we murder ourselves in thought <laughs> if we are not cheerful and full of joy at all times which is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit another way in which we are to look after our own life and encourage other people to look after theirs is by a sober use of meat drink physic or medicine sleep labor and recreation now sober here does not mean total abstinence we are not required totally to abstain from meat or meat and to starve ourselves to death but it means we are to use just enough meat or food as is necessary to sustain us in good health and give us the energy without overfeeding and stuffing ourselves or underfeeding and undernourishing ourselves so that we cannot serve God with every ounce of our strength and I'm constantly bumping into people especially in the United States I bumped into people who rant and rave against people who 
drink this substance or drink that substance and, drink, and eat this and eat that which they would never do and defile their body which they tell you is the temple of the Holy Spirit and some of these people saying this weigh 300 pounds and they look like a pig round their neck and their stomach I know I'm a little overweight myself but not quite that much their stomach just hangs over their belt and almost drapes halfway down to their knees well not quite but you know what I mean and to be told by this kind of individual that I must practice total abstinence in some or other field when he is stuffing himself in some or other field uh, frankly I think shows a, a, a tremendous lack of perspective on, on uh, the part of this kind of individual sober use of meat and a sober use of drink and a sober use of physical medicine I am just appalled to find how many Christians require mandatory total abstinence from alcoholic beverages of themselves and every other Christian that they meet while these Christians are enslaved and addicted to tea, coffee and particularly to sleeping pills sleeping pills is one of the most addictive things known to man and I cannot imagine the mentality of total abstainers from alcoholic beverages who are addicted to sleeping pills and who then go around telling other Christians you've got to totally abstain from alcohol when those Christians are hooked on barbiturates I've never understood it and I don't understand it now but of course as we use the various substances uh, that God has made for man's consumption or for his use we are to use these things soberly or people who reach for an aspirin every time they get a minor headache or people who have just got to have another cup of tea or another cup of coffee or another cigarette or, or, or another beer and they can't do without it or whatever else it is and who allow themselves as children of God to become addicted to anything now of course this doesn't mean that anything's alright to consume with your lips as long as you do it in moderation no sane person would swallow a bottom of arsenic and say well as long as I swallow it in moderation it's alright some substances that God has made are intended to be consumed by man but others are not for uh, not to be taken as the bottle shows we are also to have a sober use of labor I don't believe in the West today generally that too many of us are working ourselves to death unfortunately I'm constantly running into people who are trying to work less and less and to get more and more money for it and I feel very sorry for them however not only is it possible to work too little when God says six days shalt thou labor but it is possible to become a workaholic and to work like a robot seven days a week round the clock and you'll be surprised how many dedicated ministers of the gospel have workaholic tendencies but the word of God says that a minister or any other Christian in another profession that works seven days a week 18 hours a day is working himself to death he's killing himself he's murdering himself whereas the Bible says thou shalt not murder thyself or other people so too if you're an employer and you drive your employees seven days a week 18 hours a day you're murdering them contributing towards their being murdered by giving them an unsober amount of labor 
And then, of course, we can give people too much recreation. You know that? We can make a god out of sport. And it's become so bad today that a lot of people have very little, if any, joy in their daily work, and they just live for the next sporting fixture and for the sporting fixture after that. What has happened? Real life, the serious aspect of life, which is really of prime importance, has become to them a matter of very little importance, other than as a source of getting money. And the make-believe, relaxing element of life, recreations, football games, watching TV or whatever else it is, that's become the number one thing that they're living for. Oh, I understand this myself so well. Because, you see, before I became a Christian, as a teenager, I was addicted to a pack of playing cards. The only thing I lived for was to play poker. I made a lot of money playing poker and put myself through university because I had a, a real system. But the first thing I wanted to do when I woke up in the morning was to figure out a, a, a new strategy to win at poker. The last thing I would do at night would be to study books about card games. And wherever I went, this packet of cards accompanied me in my pocket like my Bible has done most of the time since. I was hooked on poker. I was addicted to it. And I had there an unsober use of recreation. Thank God, when the Lord saved me, I took that false Bible, that pack of playing cards, and I tore it to shreds and I threw it away. So if there's anything like that in your life, whether you think you're a Christian or not, will you not smash that idol now before it enslaves you anymore or with the freedom which Christ gives you and learn from now on to live a balanced life uh, involving a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations. Also, we are to learn to respect our own lives and those of our neighbors by charitable thoughts, love, and compassion. Charitable thoughts. If you do not love yourself, or if you do not love your neighbor as yourself, you really are murdering yourself and murdering your neighbor in thought. That's why it's so important to love, so important to be charitable, so important to be polite. If you're not that way, amongst other things, you're really breaking this commandment which says, do no murder. We're to be meek. That is just not weak. Meek. Meek is when you submit yourself with the colossal strength that God has given you as a strong man or a strong woman under the law of Christ. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus. He never said, blessed are the weak. I was at the zoo yesterday, I think it was, and was watching these elephants being bathed and this one elephant picked up this huge log and started tossing it around in the pool that elephant was meek it obeyed the the, uh, the zookeeper it was in submission to the zookeeper but it wasn't a weak animal and there should be no place for weak Christians God doesn't want you to be weak in thought, word, deed or body he wants you to be strong be strong, quit you like men with your strength you and I are to be meek to submit our colossal God-given strength which we should be developing more and more like that elephant to the will of the tamer almighty God that's true meekness and when we're like that 
when we submit ourselves willingly to the law of God, you see, in meekness, then we also submit ourselves to this law, requiring us not to murder, and requiring us to do everything we can to improve and to enhance and to protect our own life and that of everybody else. We're to be gentle and kind and peaceable and mild-mannered. And this struck me like a ton of bricks, having left Australia two weeks ago, with courteous speeches and behavior. Courteous speeches and behavior. There are one or two countries that I have visited in the world where if I go to buy a hamburger or go to draw money at a bank, nobody says please or thank you. And it's something that disturbs me because my atheistic father, who was an atheist then, raised me to say please and thank you. And courtesy costs nothing. And it's pragmatic and good to be courteous and to learn to say please and thank you. But now here in the larger catechism we're told that if we are discourteous in our speeches and our behavior we have a murderous spirit. If we're discourteous to ladies the Bible says of the weaker sex if we remain sitting in a bus when a lady comes in especially a lady older than us or a younger lady too for that matter and we remain sitting that's an act of discourteous discourtesy the larger catechism says this is an act of murder you say well this sounds like religious fanaticism to me no it isn't it is the proper application of the law of God to every possible exigency which can occur if you love your neighbor as yourself if you have a right and a courteous disposition to him interested in his life and his welfare then of course uh, you'll practice this by the way it cuts both ways you love your neighbor as yourself if you've got baggage weighing 200 pounds and someone comes into the bus who may be older of you but they're not carrying anything in such a situation uh, I may well continue sitting down because I am to love myself uh, as well as my neighbor but uh, other things being equal if I'm not burdened and the other person's not burdened and certainly if that person's a lady even a younger one I should get up in courtesy you see we need more gentlemen today and a gentleman is one who has gentleness and mildness and meekness which are fruits of the spirit which are commanded here in the word of God as understood by the larger catechism in our speeches and in our behavior forbearance readiness to be reconciled patient bearing and forgiveness of injuries I'll get you for this no no vengeance is the Lord's he will repay do good to your neighbor bless them that curse you give food to your enemy in that way you heap fiery coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but set about overcoming evil in others with good which you yourself must do and which I must do comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent well now what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are 
all taking away the life of ourselves or of others except in case of public justice. In other words, as the footnote points out here, if any man sheds the blood of man, thy man, shall that bloodshedding man's um, blood be shed. Precisely the sixth commandment, thou shalt do no murder, requires us to kill or unmurderously put to death the one who has murdered somebody else. We may not take away the life of ourselves or of others except in case of public justice where we must do this or in case of lawful war. Pacifists say we may never fight in a war. The word of God says, Psalm 144, David, blessed be the Lord my God who teacheth my hands to make war. Uh, Jeremiah uh, 48.10 is referred to in the Catechism. Cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. In other words, if God has made you a soldier, and if the enemy is attacking, it is your duty under God to take out your sword and to shed the blood of the enemy that would, if you allowed him to do so, break through your lines and destroy your wife and your family back home. The word of God is full of this. If you come home one night and uh, you open the front door and uh, suddenly there's a terrible sound in the darkness there someone comes scurrying towards you it actually being a thief uh, who is just trying to get out of the house before you grab him uh, but you are startled and think that the man in the dark is attacking you and you shoot him and you kill him according to the word of God you have not murdered him however if it's in daytime and you see the man clearly, and you see he's trying to run away from you and not to attack you, and you then kill him, well then, of course, you have committed a delict. And it's one of the terrible things that we're coming to in many law systems of the world today, that if you think that a thief or a robber in your house in the dark is about to attack you, and your wife, and your family, uh, even though he's not, but that's what you think, uh, and so you kill him, uh, perhaps not intending to kill him, but you use a degree of force to protect your family, which results in his death, which it is your duty to protect your family, that the legal system will then turn around and send you to jail. What a terrible and a horrible situation. There was a case like this in the United States about 15 years ago in Chicago. There was a police sergeant apprehended a young thug this young thug came at him with a knife the police sergeant got out of the way as the young man lunged past with a knife and then the thug came at the police sergeant again and he said son don't make me do it stop or I'll have to shoot you and again he lunged him with a knife and he sidestepped and the third time he came at the police sergeant he couldn't uh, uh, sidestep him and the police sergeant shot him to stop him and as a result of that self-defense, the young man died, and that ungodly, anti-Christian, humanistic judge sentenced the police sergeant to nine years' imprisonment. That is an ungodly thing. And can you blame young people, young men, who might otherwise want to become policemen, 
if they see that happen if an ungodly system of jurisprudence that has forgotten God and the need of putting violence down with violence with the requisite amount of violence has abandoned that has abandoned the godly theory of retribution in favor of an ungodly theory of rehabilitation oh I tell you civilization is at the crossroads today but the word of God where it says do no murder requires us in cases of public justice and lawful war and necessary defense to violently apprehend even unto death if necessary those who would violate the welfare of society or the neglecting or withdrawing of the lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life I read this not too long ago and I suddenly realized this says something about uh, euthanasia of course but also about whether to hook a terminally ill patient up onto a machine that will keep them alive when if you're not going to do that it would seem that they're about to turn into a cabbage because very clearly catechism says that we do murder not only when we withdraw the necessary means of preservation of life but also when we neglect the necessary means of preservation of life I must admit that I have been thinking particularly in the United States where it could cost you a hundred thousand dollars hopefully you carry insurance to turn into a cabbage in hospital until mercifully you die and go to be with the Lord I had thought well I think it's morally wrong to pull the plug out of that machine but I'm wondering whether it's right to push the plug into the wall when you know the person's a cabbage when they're about to die and now I read in the catechism uh, that this commandment is broken not just when the means of preservation of life are withdrawn but also when they are neglected now I think we need to think this thing out a little more carefully and there was a very serious uh, case of this in the United States a couple of years ago that you may have followed in New Zealand where even the parents of the person concerned pleaded with the doctors in a Roman Catholic hospital to pull the plug out and this thing went on for months and months and I think all credit to the Roman Catholic hospital it did for a long time and I don't know how it ended for a long time it absolutely refused to pull the plug out even though each additional day that that person remained hooked up to that machine was depriving the estate of this person who was slowly dying of a hundred dollars at least a day if not more so I'm not saying it's easy <laughs> I'm not saying it's easy to keep this commandment in the way in which the word of God and our catechism teaches but I am saying that as we study the commandment with a sharpened conscience exposed to the application of the law of God as shown throughout the whole of scripture principles begin to come into sharper focus to us so that if we study these things before this happens to us or our family we then know what is pleasing to God for us to do when and if the catastrophe hits us and may it please God that this may not happen people also are forbidden in this commandment thou shalt not kill to display any sinful anger 
And the footnote here is, is interesting. It's that text in uh, Ephesians 4, which is best translated, when you do get angry, do not allow the sun to set while you're still angry. In other words, if something makes you angry, it either makes you angry justly or unjustly. Well, if you get angry justly, that's not sinful. However, even if you get angry justly, if you stay angry after the cause of the anger is removed, at that point, it becomes sinful. On the other hand, if you unjustly get angry, you are particularly to see to it that the sun shall not set while you still remain angry. What does this mean within marriage? What does it mean within marriage? Your wife upsets you at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. And instead of reconciling yourself to your wife and the other way around before the sun is set, well, it's already set at 9 p.m., hasn't it? You say, well, I'm not going to get right with her until she gets right with me. I have found it a very perilous thing. Thank God, as far as I'm concerned, I would hope as far as my wife's concerned, I don't believe I've ever gone to bed mad with her. But I know some friends who have this problem. I once dated a girl. Thank God I didn't marry her. But if I did something minute that upset her, she'd clam up and be mad at me for four days after that. After which time I concluded I'd be wiser not to marry this girl. And I think it was a wise decision. And yet, we run into these situations. Husbands and wives who haven't spoken to one another for a couple of days let not the sun go down on your wrath get that wrath out of your system that murderous attitude as fast as you possibly can so that you can keep this commandment and rather love your neighbor and your wife as yourself you see well let's draw to an end all hatred, envy, desire of revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. If someone mistreats you, oh, don't spend time trying to figure out how to get your own back on them. Leave it to God. Leave it to God. Because when you plot revenge on those people, like the Count of Monte Cristo does in Alexandre Dumas' novel, just destroy yourself and the best years of your life trying to get. Leave it to God. Accept God's providence in using that person as an unrighteous tool unjustly to cut you down to size and to humble you hurtful as it is to you thank God that God is in it providentially turn away from that person leave them in peace and go on without trying to figure out how to bring retribution to them unless you're a public person then of course you must do it but if you're a public person you should only bring retribution against those people against whom you yourself have no personal grudge. That is to say, if you're the state executioner, and uh, when Tuesday comes, the day when you're going to dispatch ten people into the next life by the electric chair after the judge gets through with them, and then as the prisoners are led in, you suddenly see that one of them is one of your worst enemies who has been opposing you all of your life, I think the smart thing for you to do then is to go to your superior and say, this man has caused me much turmoil. 
I would like to ask that someone else flips the switch in his case and in return I will flip two switches uh, for some other person who's been sentenced whom I do not know. I think that's appropriate. Not always easy, but that's the way I think we should handle it if we possibly can. To see that there's no element of personal animosity in using force against people where we have to. Now it's not always that easy. Supposing you're a policeman and you're on the beat one night and uh, you hear a sound and you see that some young punk has thrown a rock <laughs> through uh, the window of a store and he's about to help himself to a, a color TV and you grab this kid in the dark and then when you get him under the street light you see it's your own son. What do you do? I think you take him to the police station. But having done that then you leave the further matter to other people and if you might somehow be implicated you see to it that your implication is reduced to the absolute legal minimum so this is not always easy to handle but we've got to act in such a way that personal grudges or personal preference that we may give towards a thug to whom we're uh, related is absolutely minimized and then of course we are also to avoid all excessive passions and including in that of course would be all excessive food and drink and I think all excessive sport and all excessive sexual intercourse too marriage is not a license for lust 1st Corinthians 7 makes this clear even though married parties do have sexual duties toward one another but all excess is to be avoided and all distracting cares word of God says don't worry about anything be careful for nothing but in all matters let your desires and petitions be known unto God if you're anything like me your greatest problem in life would be not to worry and I don't mean by saying she'll be right mate I don't mean that at all but I mean once you've done all that you can do as a Christian about a situation hand it over to God casting all of your burdens upon the Lord and not hugging those burdens to yourself so that you toss and you turn at night and you sleep oh what will become of me what will happen oh no you're murdering yourself that's what you're doing you're depriving yourself of that uh, sober degree of sleep which you need and which you must have now you say that's easier said than done I bet you've never had the problem Dr. Lee that I've had I want to tell you something ten years ago I had so many problems that for six months I could hardly sleep well I did sleep a little and I'll tell you how much I slept I slept exactly uh, seven hours once a week I'd lay down all night and toss and turn and pray to God to give me sleep and the sun rose the next morning I wouldn't have slept one second the next night then I'd walk for five miles to try and tire out my body and say well next night I'll sleep night number two same thing night number three same thing night number four praise God I'd sleep for three and a half hours night number five not a wink night number six not a wink night number seven three and a half hours that went on for six months now if you told me before this happened to me and I'd always slept very well until this happened that any 
human being could survive that for six months, I would have said no, a person would die of sleeplessness. But I went through it, and although I used to laugh at people before this happened to me, who said they had insomnia and couldn't sleep, believe me, I don't laugh at them now, and I'm very compassionate toward them now, and I can agree with them this is the lousiest feeling that any human being could possibly go through. So, we mustn't worry. And I'm sure that the reason why I got into this terrible state that made me think I was dying and wish I could die was I did not cast all of my burdens upon the Lord as the word of God says I should be. But I hugged many of these problems to myself as if I was somehow a half-God who could influence the course of future events of the course of Oh, my friend, listen to me. Insomnia. <laughs> the root cause of insomnia, let me tell you, is a cured insomniac. <laughs> the root cause of insomnia is doubting the all-blessed providence of Almighty God for your life. In other words, you're breaking the first commandment to some extent, and indirectly you're breaking the sixth commandment that says thou shalt not kill. Because it probably is possible in the end to, uh, uh, to indeed die through lack of sleep if it becomes absolutely unsurmountable in the end. Well, let's finish this off, shall we? Immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreation provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of anybody. Quarreling, and with that I close. Do you quarrel some kind of a person? Do you just love an argument to establish what was said and who said it? And you've got to rebut something that was said that's a little inaccurate so you write off a 5 or a 10 or a 35 page letter pointing out that you were right and everybody else was wrong quarrelsomeness let it be far from us but if we truly love ourselves and others that love will cover a multitude of sin thou shalt do no murder least of all shalt thou murder thyself in thought or word or deed but thou shalt learn to love thy neighbor as thyself and not to murder thy neighbor even as thou shalt not murder thyself are there any questions this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.